You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Beloved, uh, please stand out of reverence for being in God's presence and for hearing him speak to us from John chapter 5 verses 30 through 47. At this juncture, Jesus is in the middle of a discourse, speaking to the Jews after healing a man on the Sabbath. Verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he is borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning light and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? God has spoken. Thanks be to God. 
Our Father, we are thankful that you have spoken, that you have given us your word. Help us now to understand your word, we pray, as your people assembled under it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I don't know about you, but I would welcome a recorded version, an audio Bible read by John Leinbarger. I would listen to that every day. Uh, I feel like you're getting to know that I really love movies, which, uh, by the way, if you want a messed up movie recommendation, Rats. It's a documentary on Netflix. And uh, it's like the best horror movie disguised as a documentary that you could find. Rats, seriously, like the stuff of nightmares. Anyway, I just watched that. Uh, One of my favorite genres of movie or TV show is the trial and jury courtroom drama. I love them. I, I love the gathering of evidence, the making of a case like the procedures, the protocol, the arguments, the rhetoric, the, the twists, the gravity, the life and deathness of it all. And because of the way I argued as a kid, mostly the methods I used, my mom assumed that I'd grow up to be a lawyer. And if I wasn't uh, pastoring this church, which is very much my dream job right here with all of you, I think I could have been happy practicing law. But the Gospel of John is one big legal drama. This is what it is. While the other gospel accounts certainly include Jesus' trial, his crucifixion at the end of his life, John starts the courtroom scene much, much earlier. Almost from the beginning, Jesus is questioned. He's examined. It's kind of like Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. They're like the detectives going out and gathering evidence. They're questioning the suspect. Two weeks ago, the, the defendant committed a serious crime. He healed a man on the Sabbath. Last week, the Jewish leaders began the arraignment. They moved to prosecute based on his words, his testimony about himself and what he's done. And tonight, we'll see the defendant take the stand. Well, he's beginning to call witnesses to defend his case. Before we really get into it, let's read these first three verses again. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 30, where Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another one who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Jesus is reiterating what he's already said, what we saw last week, that he is the son of man. He is the creator and ruler of all things. He is sent by the Father. But following good Old Testament legal precedent, Jesus knows that more than one witness is needed to confirm one's testimony. So he's essentially saying, look, Look, I am who I say I am. I am the eternal judge of time and the universe. In this little courtroom proceeding that we're entering here, it's cute. Uh, But I know that the internal testimony I have, I hear from God. But I want you to not just take my word for it. If I were just some guy claiming to be the Messiah, you should actually just ignore me. In fact, I think this is what Jesus is getting after in the second half of verse 43, where he's saying lots of guys come and go claiming to be the Messiah. You shouldn't just believe them because they say that they're the Messiah. Rather, you should hear and consider the testimony of many other witnesses to corroborate what I'm saying about myself. So through the rest of chapter 5, Jesus will call three witnesses to the stand. And these witnesses will be the outline for our time together this evening. Jesus will call John the first witness, then God, the second witness, and then finally the scriptures as his third witness. Okay, so the defense calls its first witness John the Baptist. Jesus says, verse 33, you sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. 
Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Jesus refers back to what John the gospel writer, the writer of the John that we're reading here, uh, told us in chapter 1, that the Jews sent priests and Levites out from Jerusalem to John, and they were to go to him and ask him, hey, who are you? What are you doing out here? And what did John say in John chapter 1? I'm not the Christ, but he is coming. And then Jesus is saying, let me remind you of what happened He told you that he was not the Christ. The Christ was coming. And then what happened the next day when he saw me? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the earth. In verse 34, Jesus said, look, I didn't need his stamp of validation for my ministry. I didn't need him to like give me confidence about what I was saying and preaching and doing. But he said what he said And I'm reminding you now so that you may be saved, so that you might actually come to me as the Lamb of God who might take away your sins. He was a burning and shining light, or perhaps more literally, he was ignited. He was a a lamp that was ignited and he gave light, which may suggest that his light, his witness, came from a higher source. And what was the result of his light? What was the result of his preaching and his teaching? That you guys rejoiced in his ministry for a while. You were happy for his preparing and pointing ministry. He preached and he convicted you of sin and he gave you hope. He gave you joy. You rejoiced for a while, but only for a while. His light continues on. He's like, he's a, he's a glowing lamp, but you guys were like a match. You got, you got close to him and the heat or the flame that you got close to ignited you and you burned white hot for a bit. But then, like a match, you just kind of burned out. And in that sense, what Jesus is saying here ought to come as a warning to us as well. Like the seed who finds its root in rocky ground, who takes root and grows, but then there isn't room to grow roots. When the sun comes, the, the, the plant withers. Many of us can be impressed with powerful rhetoric, with persuasive preaching, even gospel-centered, Jesus-pointing preaching, like John the Baptist's. Like, who hasn't heard a great John Piper sermon or a Matt Chandler sermon or, like, some persuasive, powerful preacher, and you hear it and you said, yes! Like, I want that, too, for myself. John Piper actually believes that. I want to believe like that. I'm convicted of my sin. I'm pointed to Christ. I want this for myself. But, If we're actually honest with ourselves, it wasn't the fullness of the gospel that we actually wanted to begin then like creeping into and seeping into every nook and cranny of our life. It wasn't the authority of Jesus, the Son of Man, who now makes claims on you that we actually wanted. It was mostly, if we're honest, just kind of powerful rhetoric. Now don't get me wrong here. Powerful preaching, persuasive rhetoric, this isn't a bad thing. I actually like go about spending many hours in the week putting together a sermon, ultimately, so it it might persuade, that it might hit a heart emotionally and persuade to repent and believe. But the sermon is always meant to be the starting point of our interaction with the text. The sermon is actually supposed to be the starting point of pointing us to Christ and then us moving towards him throughout the week. If our growth and joy in Christ is merely dependent upon a preacher to do the hard work for us, we're not actually going to grow. 
Your emotions will respond, perhaps for a time, for a couple hours in the evening, perhaps even for a few weeks or a few years. But the whole self won't respond. You're depending on someone else to know Christ for you. And you aren't depending on Christ. So my hope and prayer for you is in all of these weekly 35 to 45 minute times in God's word together that all of this is just a priming of the pump, a getting us started, a pointing to Christ and then as we go out from here in the rest of our week, spending more time with this text, spending more time in reading the rest of the scriptures, spending more time together in our GCs, spending more time in praying to the triune God that we might know him more personally and deeply for ourselves. And there we'll find roots that will last, not just a match that is struck and lit and then withers and flickers out. So while John's testimony was important, an even higher witness stands ready to offer his testimony on Jesus' behalf. Jesus then calls his second witness, God, the second witness, verse 36. Jesus says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. It's a good witness, right? John the Baptist is a good one. It's a good start. But I've got somebody that's greater. For the works that the Father has given to me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Jesus has already said that he knows that he's been sent by the Father. He has this internal testimony from the Father. But how are these folks supposed to believe that? How are they supposed to know and believe that he is sent of the Father? Well, he says, second half of verse 36, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, those are the things that bear witness about me, that I am sent by the Father. Now, Jesus has been pretty harsh with the Jews at this point, and he will continue to be pretty harsh with them, that they depend only on the signs, that they are there for like the magic tricks, right? But the reality is that he is doing these things for a reason. He is turning water to wine for a reason. He is uh, healing a nearly dead child. He is telling a paralyzed man to stand up and walk for a reason. And he's doing all of this because of his compassion, yes, but more so because God wants the people to listen to Jesus. He's doing all these things to validate his ministry, to show that he is of God. Regular people don't go around doing these things. Right? Like, I think most of, most of us have never seen somebody just walk around and tell a paralyzed man for the last 37 years to stand up and walk. Jesus is who he says he is. He's the Christ. He is from God. He is God. These signs are God's testimony for Jesus. But then it seems that Jesus is beginning to get frustrated, just even considering the fact that they still don't have faith. If you're like me, when I first started studying these verses at the beginning of this week, verses 37 and 38 might have been a little confusing for you. Maybe if you started reading earlier this week or if you heard John first read them this evening, uh, what's he talking about? About them never hearing God's voice, never seeing him, never having his word? Well, the best explanation is likely that Jesus is referring to all of God's revealing work up until this point. And these folks are blind and deaf to it all. As Don Carson summarizes, unlike Moses or the countless other prophets, you folks, you've never heard his voice. You aren't listening to the prophet's words about me. More on that to come in a minute, right? But more so, 
Since you aren't listening to my words, Jesus is saying, you aren't hearing from God. God is speaking to you through me. I am speaking to you the very words of the triune God, and you're standing there with your fingers in your ears, not listening. You've never heard his voice. Second, unlike Jacob, who saw God's form and lost to him in a wrestling match, had his name changed to Israel, you folks, you've never seen God. And we know, remember in John 1, that Jesus is God manifested on earth. You wouldn't know God if you saw him. Why? Because he's standing right in front of you. You've never seen his form. You're missing him right now as you're standing there sneering. You're picking up rocks, getting ready to to kill the second person of the Trinity. The God-man is standing in front of you and you don't see him. You haven't heard him. You haven't seen him. And third, unlike, say, like Joshua or David, who hid God's word in their heart, who meditated on God's word, who were learning not to sin against God, who understood that divine blessing in their life was, was dependent on the indwelling nature of God's word in their hearts, God's word does not dwell within you. God has been speaking to Israel for centuries and centuries. And these Jewish leaders, like many of their fathers in the past, are not listening to what God is saying. In the past, all these ways that God was speaking to his people were always anticipatory, were always preparatory, were always pointing to the one to come, anticipating the one to come to fulfill it all. And here he is. So why does Jesus conclude that these leaders have never heard God's voice They've never seen God. They certainly don't have God's word within them because they don't believe the one that God the Father has sent. They're rejecting him now, so they're showing themselves that they have never seen, heard, or have his word. Every single day since creation, God has shown his love for the world. He has every single day. We know and see that because The world is still here. God has not obliterated the entire thing. He has not completely destroyed all of us in our cosmic rebellion against him. But he's also shown and spoken his love for the world and sending his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God is speaking through Jesus and he has always been speaking his love for his people. But do you ever wish that God would just say more? Right? Like, man, like a little bit more help or counsel here in this big life decision that I've got going on in my life. That'd be really helpful if you would speak to me, Lord. Or I'm really struggling to believe that you love me. Life is really difficult. Circumstances are hard these days. It's difficult to believe that you actually love me. I'm even struggling to believe that you're there at all. Like, it'd be really nice if you would just appear in the clouds like some Monty Python, like, God figure in the clouds. That'd be nice to just know that you're there. Or I wish that you would give me some deeper way to feel your love. I believe it, but it's hard to feel it these days. It's hard. But what more can he say than to you he hath said, than to you who to refuge for Jesus hath fled? Jesus is the way that we know that God loves us. How do we know that God loves us? Because Jesus became one of us. How do we know that God loves us? Because Jesus lived for us. How do we know that God loves us? Because Jesus suffered for us. How do we know that God loves us? Because Jesus died for us. He was raised to new life for us. How do we know that God loves us? 
because five bleeding wounds he bears and they plead for us. These wounds now, even now this moment, they're pleading. Forgive him. Forgive Nathan. Forgive him. Oh, they cry. Don't let that ransom sinner die. And because the triune God would go to such lengths to win, to redeem, to adopt his enemies, now with confidence I can now draw nigh and Father, Father Abba, cry. I can call God my Father. And not just call him, but he actually is Father because of what Jesus has done. But I forget that. I get bogged down in circumstances. I get bogged down in doubt. I start to doubt God's love. And so every single day of my life, I need to preach to myself, arise my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The fears that I don't have to be afraid that I'm no longer, that I'm not in God's love. If I am in Christ, I am. He has done the hard part of living and dying for me. I don't have to worry any longer that he's there or that he loves me. He has shown me that he loves me. Now that's not at all to say that God won't show himself in other ways as well. Many, many times in the past few months, even weeks and days, like Marcy and I are like looking at each other like, what? God's provided and done this? How? Like that's amazing. Thank you, Lord. Or we, your pastors, are like looking at each other and thinking like, wait, God is moving how in our people? This is incredible. Praise the Lord. I know that he is here. I know that he loves me and he loves us. But even if the Sherman family, we lost our house or we lost a child, or if Christ Church shut our doors next week or next year, or if the United States of America went back to the dark ages, God would still be there and he would still love his children. How do we know? Because of the cross of Christ. Because he lived and he died for us. How do we know the love of God? John will later tell us in 1 John 4. This is the love of God. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So as Jesus confronted these leaders, he confronts us today. And he certainly confronts Western spirituality and other world religions Do you want to know how you know God? Do you want to know how you know the love of God? You look to Christ. There's no other way to know God apart from looking to Christ. Many claim to know God but ignore Christ through his word. And like these folks that Jesus is confronting, they wouldn't know God if they saw him. And we all too often get upset at what we think is an absent God, don't we? When he's right there all along and we're just too proud or distracted to look. We put Jesus on trial. The evidence confirming who he is, his love, his care, his provision for us all is overwhelming. And yet we're still not satisfied with his testimony of himself. If I were God, I would do things differently. We either verbally speak or subconsciously believe at like the height of delusional pride But Jesus says, I am who I say, and the evidence is there. Trust and believe me. John the Baptist has testified. God the Father has testified. 
through the signs of Jesus and all of revealed human history up until this point. And now God, or Jesus, will call his third and final witnesses, the scripture themselves. He says, verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So at first glance, it sure looks like Jesus is kind of like bashing or at least minimizing the scriptures, right? You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Implication is you, the scriptures don't and you don't have life. But Jesus isn't bashing here. I think he's confronting a way of understanding the scriptures in these days. There's a guy a few decades before Jesus is on the scene. His name is Hillel, the elder. Perhaps you've gone with some friends to like a a Hillel center, a Jewish center named after this guy. And a few decades before Jesus in Jerusalem, perhaps near the spot that Jesus is teaching right now, Hillel taught more Torah, more life. Meaning, the more you know, The more you understand, the more you memorize the scriptures, the more you know and keep the law, then the more life you have. Like, assumingly, both now, you experience more life now and for eternity. And perhaps it's Hillel's disciples that Jesus is now confronting. Jesus seems to be saying, you think that they themselves, the words of the law, have the ability to save you, and yet you're missing me. I recently saw a writer share a picture and there's this beach sunset. It's, a, it's like an amazing beach sunset. The sky is on fire. And then underneath this beautiful sky, there's a silhouette of a guy with a metal detector walking on the beach. And this writer said, aren't we all that guy madly searching for buried treasure when it's right above you if you'd only look up? And this is what Jesus is getting after. Studying and searching the scriptures is a good thing. But if the search is so consuming that you can't see the treasure when it smacks you in the face, you've missed the point. If the scriptures and the universe is beeping like a metal detector to get you to look up, but we miss it because we have much smaller searches in mind, much smaller desires, then we've missed the point Altogether. So, how many of you have been sticking with us in our read scripture plan? You don't have to raise your hand. You're, you're 28 days. You're 28 days into this plan, and perhaps, if you're honest with yourself, you might be a little disappointed. 28 days in, you're like, "Wait, I thought the payoff was going to be a lot better than this. I thought I was supposed to be more spiritual and holy now. I thought I was." supposed to be happier. I thought I was supposed to understand the universe much better 28 days in. It's not happening. It must not be working. Let's quit. Well, first of all, let me encourage you in the same way that I've encouraged you many, many times. uh, It's very good and right and important that we have right and realistic expectations. 
Well, it's possible. It's not likely that one single time of reading the Bible for 15 minutes is going to drastically alter the trajectory of your life. In the same way that it's very likely that one Sunday evening here together won't drastically alter the trajectory of your life. Takes the pressure off of me a little bit, right? No one Tuesday evening or Sunday morning GC gathering is going to drastically alter the trajectory of your life. But 50 or 70 years of reading the Bible for 15 minutes or so a day, 50 or 70 years of regular and disciplined weekly getting together with God's people under his word, 50 or 70 years or however many years the Lord gives us together, meeting together throughout the week and talking about our lives and talking about how to pursue him uh, more deeply and earnestly, that will change the trajectory of your life. At this point in the sermon, we were made aware that there was a natural gas smell in our children's area, and so we had to make the difficult decision to end the sermon and end our service right here. So I am now recording the rest of this sermon in to my phone and upstairs in the office. So here we go, back to where we left off. So here's an important question for us as we open our Bibles or open the Read Scripture app each day. And this back to Jesus' confrontation in John 5 is, why are we doing this? Why do we read the Bible? Is it to get the two or three little check marks on the app each day? Is it to pat yourself on the back that you read the entire Bible this year? Is it, is it groupthink peer pressure? Is it because you think that that's what good Christians do? Or if I just read the Bible, then I'll stop being anxious or I can finally kick that one sin for good? This is metal detectors on the beach. Small searches and small desires. The scriptures are there to show us Christ. They always have been. You think they have life in and of themselves, Jesus is saying, but they are there to bear witness about me, to show me to you. The Jews of the day knew the Old Testament forward and backward. They were diligent to keep and prescribe the tiniest minutia. But then when the blazing sunset of the universe shows up, they get mad and they shake their metal detectors at a dude for carrying a mat on the Sabbath. So why are we reading the Bible together as a church? To see Christ. So as you open the Bible or when you open the Read Scripture app and you see that pulsing little circle there, take a few seconds. Pray that, pray to God. Say, God, show me yourself. In light of what I see of you, show me myself. Show me Christ. Help me to love him. Help me to want what he wants. Amen. And then let's get into the loops for the tabernacle curtains or whatever. You know, the lengths that God will go to with such precision and perfection to build a tabernacle to allow a sinful people to live with a holy God for a time. But now praise God for a more precise and perfect tabernacle who would walk among us to allow a sinful people to live with a holy God for eternity. But that's another sermon for another day. Even the tabernacle curtains are there to show us Christ. So it isn't just that Jesus isn't bashing or minimizing the scriptures. He's just saying that they don't have life to save. Christ has life to save. But where do we find Christ today? We find him in the scriptures. And we've all heard stories of people who have come to life through them because of Christ. My journalism and religion professor at the University of Texas, he's the editor of World Magazine, Marvin Olasky. And he was a Jewish communist atheist at Yale in the 1960s. And in his graduate studies, he was studying Russian, and to study, one day he began reading one of the only Russian books left in his bedroom that he hadn't yet read. He started reading the Bible in Russian, and by the time that he had finished, he was convinced that this thing was greater than anything that Tolstoy or Dostoevsky had written, and that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ. He was the God of the universe, and Olasky trusted him with his life for eternity. And I love these stories. 
We could, I'd love to just go on sharing more for another hour. But when people open this book and see Christ, when they hear Christ and when they believe him, not just in the Gospels, but in the Old Testament pages that set the stage, these Old Testament stories that get the props arranged and the, the lighting all right. They set the conflict and ask all the right questions for then the moment when the lights come on and the anticipated main character finally walks on. This is why we read the Bible. And this is why we'll keep preaching through books of the Bible here at Christ Church. Not just, or we'll just keep preaching one book after the other because Jesus is the main character and hero of all of them. Does he have things to say about parenting and finances? He does. Does he care about transforming the way that we think about culture and the movies? Yeah. But will we ever do a 10-week study on finances or, or Jesus at the movies? No. Because we need to hear, we need to see, we need to understand him. And all those implications will follow. And the Bible has plenty to say about parenting and finances and culture and even how we consume entertainment. And luckily, we'll get to all of it. All of the Bible is Christ's word to us. But we're here as his people assembled under his word to meet Christ. That's why I've told you before, I hereby release you from being feverish sermon note takers. So by all means, jot a few things down that you want to think through and process throughout the week. But a sermon isn't just information transfer information that's moving from my brain and mouth to your ears and brain. We are all here to meet the risen and living Christ who is present with us this evening. And yet we, and the angry Jewish leaders that Jesus is confronting, so often treat the Bible for other purposes, and we miss them altogether. Jesus seems to be asking, what are you doing? Look up! But then he does something surprising in verses 45 through 47. Though he's the one that's on trial, He's the accused one, and he's the one calling witnesses uh, up to the stand for his defense. He's the one then who turns the table. It's not just that they've missed the point of the scriptures, that they've misunderstood Moses and the law. It's not that they've missed the point. It's that their faith in the scriptures actually now accuses them. They're the ones now on the stand. Because while the world responds angrily and violently to Jesus... They accuse and try Jesus. Jesus' coming actually puts the world on trial. No human is able to keep the law. No human is able to live perfectly enough. And the greatest hero of Judaism, Moses, the giver of the law, the, the deliverer of Israel, he stands now condemning them. Jesus came to his own, but they did not receive him. And Moses is just there shaking his head, saying, Seriously, guys, here's the love of God. Here is life. And you're satisfied with the law. You're satisfied with self-righteousness and death. But just like we said nearly every week in Genesis, let's be very careful to shake our heads and wag our fingers, saying, stupid old Israel, I never would have acted in the way that they do here. But how many of us are so proud in our theology, consciously or subconsciously, so proud that we've got all the categories figured out, that we thank the Lord that we're not like others who don't? How many of us are so proud in our character, in our discipline, in our habits? Thank you, God, that we aren't like them, we think. Thank you that we're so disciplined. How many of us are so happy to use our good works and right thinking as a way to actually avoid the suffering servant? Because if we can become members of the right church, if we can know the Bible forward and backward, if we can do all the things and keep all the rules, then we don't actually have a need for a Savior because there's nothing left that He needs to save us from. Don't hit me wrong. We should actually become members at a good church. We should seek to know the Bible forward and backward. We should pursue Him in holiness. It's just that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. 
Putting your hope in theological categories will send you straight to hell. Putting your hope in Christ will save you for eternity. Jesus acquits himself here in chapter 5, but his accusers aren't satisfied. He'll continue to acquit himself and acquit himself and acquit himself. And even though he will be found innocent before Pilate and the high priest in chapter 18, they still will execute him. But through his condemnation and death, the many are acquitted to life. Trust him. Rest in him today for the first time or even more deeply. God, we are thankful for John chapter 5. We are even thankful for old buildings that can go wrong, but that allow us to meet together as your people under your word. We're thankful for these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.